This is the Sklo Library Podcast. In this episode, we are talking local history with Matt Maris. Matt is a public historian and the owner of Local Historia, a company that is passionate about connecting people with local history through walking tours, content creation, and other experiences. Matt is also a high school teacher and lives with his wife and son in Belfont. Matt Maris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. So what is the condensed history of central Pennsylvania? Well, that's a great question. It's a it's a it's an area rich with history, just like any, you know, anywhere you look at look into. Uh, if you look into any area, you're going to find incredible history. The first Pennsylvanians were indigenous Native Americans and, you know, got to start there with any local history. Uh, there's over 200 identified sites, uh, historically significant sites of Native Americans just in Center County alone. And that's only the ones that we know about. So uh, there's tons of, of Native American history in Center County and this whole region and, you know, the United States. As far as the settlement of Central Pennsylvania, you have, I think the iron industry is what pulled people here the most and pushed people here. Uh, it was a lot of Revolutionary War veterans who were from Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia, uh, like Chester County, and a number of them came here to start a new life after they served in the Revolutionary War. And this area had all the ingredients you need to make iron or, or to build forges and furnaces. Uh, so according to, according to the Center County Historical Society, there was 48 furnaces and 42 forges in this region, what they called the Juniata Iron Region, which included Center County uh, by 1850s. Some of the pictures of that time, uh, I recall seeing at the Historical Society where the entire landscape is denuded of trees. Yeah. It's wild to think that what we consider a lush landscape, this is all in the last 150 years that yeah. at one point it was all charcoal. Right, right. Yeah, it was just all cleared. Um, yeah, they needed tons of charcoal, acres and acres all the time. And um, some people's whole job was uh, to make charcoal um, and to just, you know, cut down trees and, and have it ready for the for the furnaces. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. You have, uh, you know, lumbering going on too and, and those kind of primary industries. But again, it's those ingredients that we have the iron ore and we have the timber for charcoal and we have the limestone and of course the water power all through this area. Um, so you have Center Furnace, which is the first one and which the county gets his name after, you know, is named after that. Um, and like I said, Miles and Patton, they're both from outside of Philadelphia. And Miles, Samuel Miles was the, the mayor of Philadelphia and he's the guy who came here and, and uh, started Center Furnace. And then you have, you know, from there, you have furnaces in Belfont. Um, you have the Belfont Forge. You have Rock Forge. You have uh, Harmony Forge. You have Logan Furnace, Hecla Furnace, um, Pennsylvania Furnace. All this area is just, just, just um, booming. Um, somebody wrote it as an iron rush one time. I forget who said that, but it really was. Uh, that was a good description of it. How long did that last about what point did um, the economy have to transfer away from that? Well, that's a great question. I think uh, I think mid uh, 19th century, uh, by the by the Civil War, you still have 
furnaces and even into the late 1800s. But I think other areas started to um, catch up in, uh, in Pennsylvania and the transportation got better and we're clearing out all of our iron ore and all of our timber. So at some point uh, that our resources got um, depleted. Certainly I think the peak was about around 1850. I was surprised to learn what a cosmopolitan town Belfont was. What are some of the things that folks might not realize about Belfont's history? Yeah, it, uh, it, it really was. It was um, it was the county seat, you know, by 1800, Center County forms out of a few different counties around like Huntington and Mifflin and Northumberland. So it's, again, there's these iron masters that are coming here. They're Revolutionary War veterans. And, and Belfont in particular is the Dunlops. So it was uh, Colonel Dunlop and his son, John, and his son-in-law, James Harris, came out here, and Harris was a surveyor, convenient enough. Um, and they all came out here and started the town by 1795. They intended for it to be also the county seat, and they, you know, they were very ambitious. And it did become the county seat. And I think that uh, is a huge impact on it being um, so influential in the area. And you know, like you described, a cosmopolitan town. You you have judges here attorneys here uh they you know we have a, a street that we call attorneys row a lot of houses that judges had built the belfont art museum is a house that was built for a judge named jonathan walker i like to say we had our own johnny walker in belfont and his son uh this is a good example of, of, of the county seat having an impact his the judge is here and his son uh robert walker grew up in that house or was a child in that house and then he attends the belfont academy and becomes uh, one of the one of the seven famous seven governors that came out of Belfont. Uh, though he was a governor of the Kansas Territory during Kansas, which would, would have been incredible, uh, really intense time. But um, I think I like to say it's no accident that seven governors came out of um, Belfont because of it being uh, the county seat and having that kind of like trickle down effect. Um, another thing I think is the just all the connections to Penn State. Uh, so I like to really point that out is, you know, Belfont's older, uh, as far as being established as a town, there were people in Bullsburg and there were people all over the county. It was citizens uh, mainly from Belfont, like Hugh, Hugh McAllister, and he was like on the board that established the Farmers High School, and Andrew Greg Curtin, they both reached in their own pocket and gave money. And then, of course, James Irvin, the Iron Master at Center Furnace, donated the 200 acres. Um, he at one time lived in Belfont. So they, these guys all knew each other and they all worked hard to attract the, the state agricultural college to be here because it was not a determined fact that it would be in Center County. So they had to, it looked like they wined and dined, you know, these board members to get it, to get it here. And they made it uh, an offer that they could not refuse and got it here. And of course we have perfect farmland and rich resources in that, that aspect, especially since it was all cleared out mostly like we talked about earlier. So uh, if you recognize names like the governors that come out of Belfont, you know, when you're driving through State College, you look at the place names and look at the street names, you'll see Curtin and Beaver and McAllister and Bigler uh, and Packer. So you see all these uh, names of, of influential people that uh, lived and worked in Belfont. I feel that Belfont provides us a couple of good lessons as individuals and in how to be. Mm. 
It was quite the cosmopolitan oasis, but the world is always changing and the good times can't last forever. Mm -hmm. If State College today has a tendency to be a little smug sometimes, it definitely shouldn't because we see that no one knows what the future holds yeah. and in 50 years we might all be commuting to Carthus to work in the cold fusion plant. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Also, absolutely. Thank God the Belfont Town Fathers were able to facilitate a transfer of industry to replace iron manufacturing, where Center County would look a lot different than it does today. Yeah, and they're so uh, they're so interdependent. All these towns in uh, this area and all these townships, um, in, you know, in Center County and even beyond Center County, all these regions are so interdependent um, with each other. And State College and Belfont, like I like to say, we're like, you know, at this point we're siblings. You know, it's like it's just like you need you need each other. You're um, we're mutually beneficial in so many ways. That's certainly true in the library world. Sklo and the Center County Libraries are like two peas in a pod, working hand in hand. So Belfont was one of the first electric towns, right? One of the first to get electricity. Electricity uh, is a really cool topic. It's one of Belfont's, you know, claim to fame's, is that electricity came to the town so early, and it and it should be. It's a really cool fact it's a really uh, it's it's well documented that we had um, electricity at the bush house there was a little celebration in um, February of 1884 and New York City had electricity in 82 so it's really really early um, but I, I do like to point out that I, I don't think it was second in the world or anything like that I think it was top 10 I think it was probably maybe top five uh, but other other towns in the area claim the same thing, um, like Sunbury and Shimokin. Um, So I don't know if it's that important to say it's number two or number three, but I, it's super, super early. And it's really cool. And that same night that they uh, had electricity at the Bush house, they also lit up the Brockerhoff house and they also lit, lit up the had a light in front of the courthouse. So that's been some research that um, we've come across recently in our tours for our Christmas tours, then we realized, hey, it wasn't just the Bush House. Edison was in town, he was staying at the Bush House, he was, his company, the uh, Edison Electric Company was wiring it. And it must've been a really cool, exciting time because imagine seeing electricity for the first time. You know, some people saw it at World's Fairs by that point, uh, but most people in Belfont or anywhere had never seen an electric light bulb. And I think they were, shocked to see to see <laughs> to see it <laughs> for sure it, it's something i mean it's so ubiquitous to us we obviously take it for granted but you know imagine if your day ended yeah at dusk yeah it's like <laughs> that would yeah. be terrible go to bed or or uh or stay by the fire or you know somewhere where you can see so yeah i think we uh that, that's a game changer there for sure I also recently heard, because of the Quaker influence in the area, that the Belfont School Board desegregated uh, super early, like yes. crazy yeah. early. Yeah, and that's that's one of the most amazing things about Belfont as well is, um, yeah, in 1885, the schools were desegregated. And, and so that's about 70 years before Brown v. Board of Education. So a huge deal. And uh, the story behind that is um, a local citizen, uh, an African-American named William H. Mills, who's the grandfather of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame group, the Mills Brothers. So his grandchildren are that group. Uh, but he lived in Belfont and his whole life and was a barber. 
um, in a basement near the uh, High Street Pub, or excuse me, Governor's Pub. In that area, he cut cut hair for about 60 years, and he was just a pillar of the community. Uh, he was a leader at the local AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church um, in Belfont. And uh, he talked about, um, you know, this in one of his uh, histories that he wrote about the church. And it's just well known that he was a big part of him and other citizens were a big part of getting that done and talking and influencing the school boards. People had so much respect for him that he was able to um, highly influence that. And with that, um, I do like to point out that, you know, they say that family, the Mills family, were descendants of escaped slaves. So we, we might talk about the Underground Railroad here in a second. But so that family is, is likely uh, descendants of escaped slaves. And his father fought for um, in the Union Army and his uncle. So Lewis and Edward Mills fought for USCT troops. That's, that's African-American soldiers because the, the army was segregated. And they fought for their own freedom and for the freedom of other African-Americans in the Civil War. And then his grandchildren, um, or he helps desegregate schools in Belfont, and then his grandchildren are Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. So just an incredible family uh, and achievements in that family. We will be back with local historian Matt Maris in a moment. The Midpoint Break in most podcasts is sponsored by an underwriter. At Sklow Library, however, we have nothing we're trying to sell you. Our mission is to promote a flourishing culture throughout central Pennsylvania. That's why all our underwriters are from fiction. Promotional consideration for today's episode is provided by the Vincent Clortho Public School for Wizards, ranked 171st by U.S. News and School Reports. Don't settle for a Moomy Plopper Ferns High School for Dolts. You can do better. Remember, there is never a portal that cannot be opened with ingenuity and respect. If there is an underwriter from fiction you would like to see sponsor the show, send your advertisement copy to podcasts at sclowlibrary.org. We are back with Matt Maris from Local Historia, talking about local history in central Pennsylvania. Matt, why is studying local history important? I answered this question in, in Belfont.com. Uh, they had a similar question, so I, I don't know if you'd mind me just reading my response to that. This is what I said to um, something similar, and I said, local history is about understanding the human experience. I try not to idealize the past, but there's something captivating about those pre-TV days when life was a little more authentic, to say the least. Local history is especially interesting to me because of all the connections we can make. I think we all have a deep need to connect with others, even the, in the past. Not only can bonding with the past help us feel like a human being, but we can also connect to place, which has a powerful meaning and associations to memories in our daily lives. For example, when discussing the Underground Railroad activity in Belfont and someone can feel emotions about something that happened over 160 years ago, that's really special. And that's where the past and the present meet and we kind of transcend time. So it's weird, but history is a little transcendental for me in that way. History is tremendously valuable by itself, but I think local history is one of the best ways to connect and one of the best ways to 
learn about a community. Like if you can start with local history, you're going to really understand where you live or where you're visiting and really feel like more of a part of that place uh, when you when you have a, a foundation of the history of that place. A bunch of what you said there ties in with, well, lately I've been thinking about history as narrative and how the divergence in a national collective memory is currently playing out in our society. A wildly different life experience of Americans is nothing new. There are folks who might be listening to this who in the past might have had to get their husbands to sign for a credit card or to use segregated facilities. What is new is that we have many competing national narratives, some of which are quite divergent from each other. Before the internet, you had mainstream news and maybe the occasional alternative publication if you're in a metropolis. But now you get a whole spectrum of ways of thinking of our country, and the vision in your head could be quite different from that of your neighbor, even if you share many of the same demographics. As an educator of American history, does this fractured state in our collective memory seem to be a challenge or an opportunity? Yeah, that's a great uh, great question and a great perspective. And I agree with everything you just said. You know, I think I think it's an opportunity, um, you know, definitely to answer your question. I think like you're talking about collective memory and national memory is a construction that changes over time. And, and uh, like you said, you know, it used to be more of a nationalistic kind of thing that everybody was on the same page and not everybody. But uh, used to be, like you said, before the Internet, you just had textbooks or you had just, you know, one or a few one or a few voices they're coming into your living room. So now, yeah, there's a whole, the marketplace of idea thing is like just totally uh, chaotic maybe, but it's good, it's good. It's, uh, I think it's an opportunity like we, for example, we might talk about Christopher Columbus and that can be a controversial subject, but it's a really good one to explore that narrative and say, hey, like people used to say he was this, you know, he was a hero for this and is he guilty of genocide? You know, you can, you can ask those questions. And as a teacher, that's fun because you can, you know, you have to you kind of play the devil's advocate sometimes and you analyze different perspectives and you try to get kids to think about what, or students or anybody you're educating to think about, well, what do I think? Yeah, I think it's an opportunity and that just came to mind as a, an example. I think one important idea that is a casualty of the culture war is that history is by definition selective, meaning it does not claim that a single account is a full representation of what was and learning an account from a particular point of view does not have to displace other accounts. Columbus can be both great and terrible. The meaning of the past is not a math problem with a single answer to solve for. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, social studies and history is, yeah, you're right. There's, it's not a math problem. It can be messy. I think it was Malcolm X who said he didn't care for math because there was a definitive answer. Whereas with the humanities, you know, you have a thesis you put forward. You have an argument you put forward. Yeah, I think uh, as long as people can have a, try to have a reasonable discussion and, and dialogue about um, about history and about, you know, it gets, you know, these things cross into a political nature and and that's okay too, because we live in a, a society that needs to to discuss things. And so things things might change. So can you tell us about local historia? Sure. So 
most of the, most of our focus is on walking tours and you know I'm, I'm the owner of local story we've been doing this for about a year uh and a little over that and again i just love sharing local history and um I'm, as a teacher you know i'm a teacher as well but be, doing a walking tour is pretty special because you're kind of like i like to say it's like a history lab like you get to point out things and walk by things and um it's a really like i talked about connecting with place and then people who are on the tours so that's like the heart of local Astoria is is walking tours but we also do other experiences and events uh not so much lately with covid but uh, there might be events that are just out in one place you know kind of a thing but at its heart it's a passion for local history community and preservation so the purpose is to shine light on the past connect with community in the present and preserve local history for the future so it's kind of connecting the past present and future in that way and i just get a joy out of helping people connect with local history and just seeing them you know think about you know edison and, and you know the electricity coming and you know seeing them talk about the underground railroad in their town and connecting it with uh, you know with belfon or wherever else so where can our listeners find out more about local history or experience a walking tour so local story is on social media and mostly, uh, you know, Instagram and Facebook. And lo- I do have a website, localhistoria.com. So everything that we post as far as events on social media will be also on uh, the website, localhistoria.com. Uh, but if you follow the social media, like if you follow, um, like, so it's local historia, but it's underscore com on Instagram and or Facebook. Part of what we do as well is just create content and try to put research out there and share share information about local histories. If listeners want to find out more, they can follow the links in this episode's description. What have I not asked you that I should have? Well, you've asked some really good questions, Ben. Um, I'm sure we could have this conversation for a long time, but you know, I thought I'd plug my YouTube channel right now since uh, okay. maybe maybe people aren't aware of that. As a uh, we local historia is trying to do more video content and there's about um seven or eight videos on there right now i really enjoy uh, making videos of about local history because you get to throw in images you get to throw in you know video content pictures uh narratives you can talk you can interview people so one of the videos is uh at at the mud church with um a local historian named chris and he uh, takes us through the history of Phillipsburg and and specifically that burial ground and the mud church, and it's it was just a blast. So anytime I can do that with on uh, different sites in Center County or even beyond, uh, we're going to do that. And we're going to post it. So if you get if you're interested in watching those kind of things, just uh, please subscribe to uh, Local Stories channel and and enjoy those. So if you could travel to any era in American history, what would you pick? So I picked, uh, you know, I think when you're learning about something, you can get really into it. I, that happens to me when I'm learning about whatever it is. Uh, and you kind of just imagine yourself in that time period. But I think I would pick uh, if I could live 100 years, 1840 to 1940. So if I could be born in 1840 in, uh, you know, I think a lot of my wheelhouse is in that time period, too. So that makes you know sense that I would I, I understand that time period a little bit. And maybe, you know, I'd be 21 when the Civil War breaks out and maybe I could, you know, you know, I'd like to be born in Pennsylvania and fight for the Union and kind of like I, I, you know, I've done tours on the Civil War and local veterans. And I just 
I've read about them and I've read their words and I don't know, I just feel like uh, I'd be right there with them or trying to be, you know? Um, so, and then I, if, if I survive that and keep going, I, you know, I think the end of the century, like we're talking about with, with electricity is just like a whole change in, in history. So I think I'd like to see that change and live into the, you know, turn of the century and into the, you know, 1900s a little bit, but uh, that everything really changes from electricity to transportation. Um, so I think right at that World's Fair in 1893 is a huge game changer for, um, for, uh, for everything. So I think to see that would be pretty cool. If you were teaching a class on local history, what would some of the recommended readings be? Yeah, uh, I like, obviously you're in the library science world with, uh, you know, primary sources are what we're going to focus on. Uh, a lot because but there's some great um books that i can also recommend um there's one re recently came out called women of steel and it talks about uh anna wagner keekline which is belfont's architect uh first registered female architect in the state of pennsylvania so we read that and you know there's some um, great articles from the center county historical society uh called center county heritage and they have volumes of articles so these are great and they talk about everything from toll houses to, you know, iron production, coal mining. So that would be good. Uh, Benner Township book I have on 150 years of Benner Township is a really good one. And a memoir by a local who grew up in the 19, early 1900s in Belfont called, uh, his, his name's Charles Minch. So we'd probably read that. There's a centennial uh, on Belfont. Uh, that's a, one of my favorites. So they say the Bible of Center County and Clinton County history is uh, John Blair Lynn's 1883 work. So a lot of the his history I start with starts with this, but um, you know, like with anything, you you keep your skepticism up and you look for things to corroborate. But that is kind of a good thing to start with, and I'm sure we'd read that. It's online, uh, it's digitized. I'm very thankful when things are digitized because it makes it a lot easier to read stuff. Um, First Pennsylvanians is a great uh, book and reference as well about Native Americans in Pennsylvania. And we could look at um, evidence of, you know, Seneca and Cayuga and Iroquois and um, in this area. And what else? I think newspapers, primary sources, like in that, in that aspect, and maps. Uh, one of my favorite things to read is a map like the Sanborn maps. Uh, and again, thankful to Penn State, they've digitized tons of newspapers and tons of maps. And that's uh, a lot of the things that I'm able to learn are, are about this area are from those. Oh, wow, a lot of recommendations there. This is not specific to Center County, but one book of historical fiction I liked a lot is The Whiskey Rebels by David Liss. It follows a household taking their Revolutionary War script and settling around Pittsburgh and all the reasons for and ramifications of the Whiskey Rebellion. And then there is a nonfiction book I really enjoyed called Measuring America by Andrew Linkletter about the first official surveys of the country and the monumental task of these two-person crews inchworming their way across the country and the inherited effects that that has had on many aspects of our country. I'll have to check that one out. I made a, I made a note. Measuring America. Thank you. Matt Maris? Thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you, Ben.
now have our occasional segment, Sklo's office manager DJ Lily's A Book in Six Words. Her review of Plum Spooky by Janet Ivanovich is Supernatural Kooky Mini Play Mystery, Eep! If you would like a little more Eep in your life, head on over to sklolibrary.org, and in the catalog you will find Plum Spooky in print, large print, audiobook CD, and ebook, plus hundreds of thousands of other titles. nightcap comes from Dave Carter. Read by permission, this is Crocodile Man. Mama, she raised me on riddles and trances. Fat back channel cat lily white lies. Rocked my cradle in a jimmy crack fancy. Never knew papa, and I never asked why. Well now, people say papa wasn't no account anyway. People say papa was a rolling stone. I turned 20 on the Waccamaw Thruway, hitched up the river in the dark, alone. I hooked up with a carny, little out of Memphis, slaving in a sideshow, pennies in a jar, beetle-eyed jokers and hick-town princes, rhinestone rubies and rubber cigars. Rustled me a gator up in Omaha City, then did me another down in New Orleans, tangled with the barker run off with the kitty, crawled the Mississippi, and I got away clean. Underneath the levee, in a cattail thicket, hidden in the shadow of a shady grove, there's a thatched roof rising from a poke fence picket, white smoke billows from a kettle black stove. Inside the house is the hall of mirrors. Inside the mirror is the temple of sin. And inside the temple is the face of mama. And Mama, she knows just where I've been. Yeah, my Mama knows exactly where her bad boy's been. Sleeping with a stranger in a no-name town. Thanksgiving dinner at the Top Hat Lounge. Christmas Eve at the Fantasy Tan. Oh, Lord have mercy on the Crocodile Man. This podcast is produced by Sklo Center Region Library. Thanks to Matt Maris for joining us. In this episode's description, you can find many ways to connect with local Historia and some other online resources. While you're online, head on over to Sklo Library for all sorts of fun and educational rumpus to be had. You can find us at sklolibrary.org. I'm Ben Drain, your old friend and erstwhile companion. Take care until we meet again. Mm-hmm.